This training is part of a governance series that Resolve have developed to prepare board members and leadership to be better equipped for the governance journey. This resource has been prepared as much as possible to be generic and useful across the wide range of not-for-profit enterprises across the social sector globally. Resolve is a specialist governance consulting firm that operates worldwide in the areas of building healthy governance and management practices in not-for-profit organisations. These training modules delivered by Resolve seek to improve governance practices and are presented in a conversation-style podcast format so they're accessible to board members and leaders wherever they find themselves. You might like to listen to these topics as a group and discuss them or listen to them on your own in your car or at home. Our hope is that in providing a flexible format, board members and leaders alike can engage with this material and that it can lead to better board governance. Welcome to this board training podcast. This podcast will explore the role of the board as a whole, plus the role and responsibilities of an individual not-for-profit board member. But first, a quick refresher on why governance is so important to a not-for-profit organisation. Good governance is important to the health of an organisation, helping provide the strong foundations and framework for the organisation to thrive and contribute strategically, impacting our world for good. Not-for-profits form part of the social sector. Much of our own individual lives, the media and society revolve around social aspects or relationships, which is the case also for -for not-for-profit organisations. If not-for-profit organisations simply try to adapt a corporate framework to their organisations, it's not going to satisfy the relationship-centred needs of a not-for-profit community. The community governance framework that's been developed by Resolve is centred around developing healthy relationships through the organisational policies and processes we employ. This centrality of relationships through shared purpose, values and vision is integral for -for not-for-profits establishing and maintaining a healthy organisation. To learn more about Resolve's community governance framework for building healthy not-for-profit organisations, please pay a visit to the Resolve website at resolve.consulting. The CEO of a charity once reflected that he didn't understand why his board spent so much time in the detail of running the day-to-day of the organisation. The board chairman said that the board wanted to operate with a governance focus, but it seemed that so often individual board members would bring up issues relating to their personal experience working with charity staff, or question in so much detail operational matters. One example was the amount of time taken to review the finance report each month. A couple of board members would want to talk about lots of individual line items, drilling down to the detail even though the spending was within the already approved annual budget. The CEO was really starting to get the feeling that the board was second-guessing management and trying to redo the work of management at board meetings. Didn't the board trust management? Were there other reasons the board kept diving into the detail? And why didn't the chairman try and keep the board on track at the governance level during discussions? The whole situation was very frustrating to the CEO. It sounds obvious, but one of the largest sources of conflict in not-for-profit organisations occurs when the board or staff try to perform each other's role. Boards can be confused about their role, including questioning what the focus of board meetings should be, the difference between their role and management's role, whether the board is really adding any significant value to the organisation other than endorsing management decisions. This can be exacerbated when board members feel like they don't have the necessary expertise to comment on aspects of the organization's operations due to their lack of skills in a specific area. 
For example, non-teachers serving on a school board, or non-healthcare professionals serving on an aged care board. Another way to think about the role of the board is to flip these questions on their head. A question that boards should be regularly asking is, what isn't our role? To help give priority to governance duties and to help avoid conflict and meddling in operational areas best handled by management. The board is responsible for governing the organization, not managing it. The governance role in a board context is one that provides the organization with direction toward a common core purpose and vision, and one that also holds management accountable for achieving that purpose and direction through various mechanisms and tools. Accountability mechanisms and tools include strategic planning, compliance reporting, policy development, budgeting and management performance appraisals. When I started a new job for a big not-for-profit, one of the first things that happened was I was put through a staff induction process along with all new staff. Part of this process included sessions that outlined the values, purpose and vision of the organisation. I also remember being told at an interview before even being hired that all the staff needed to be on the same page and understand why the organisation existed, what we were about. Jim Collins, an organisational effectiveness author and consultant, talks in his book Good to Great about needing to get the right people on the organisational bus and to then get these people in the right seats, their roles. He also notes that the wrong people eventually need to get off the bus if your organisation is going to be a great one. A common understanding and support for organisational values and purpose means everyone can more easily get behind a common vision for the organisation to move in the same direction and to help the organisation thrive. The start of a board's role is to discern and communicate a common understanding and articulation of core values and core purpose of the organisation. This conversation should start with a discussion about the core values first. A healthy not-for-profit board should be able to articulate the core values of the organisation, as these determine and describe who the organisation is fundamentally. A good analogy would be to see core values like DNA in humans. DNA determines our fundamental, unique characteristics and maps what makes each of us uniquely us. An organisation's values express the organisation's culture and personality. It articulates what makes the organisation unique, its DNA, those things that if you took them away or didn't live up to them would impact the foundational identity of the not-for-profit. Articulating and living out our organisational core values should flow through and characterise policy setting, organisational structure, roles, processes, behaviours and decisions throughout the whole organisation. Our core values should themselves reflect other foundational statements and documents, such as those sometimes found in organisations' constitutions or statements of faith, in the case of faith-based not-for-profits. Whilst core values provide one arm of a solid anchor for our organisation, core purpose provides the other arm of the anchor, in articulating the core reason for being in the form of a concise, long-term direction statement. The board should have a clear understanding of the organisation's core purpose, why the organisation is compelled to exist. Governance decisions should always be consistent with the organisation's core purpose. Core purpose sounds pretty similar to vision, which is another concise statement also concerned with direction. A vision statement is very similar to a purpose statement. Both are concerned with describing what the organisation sees or wants to be. 
However, vision is much more of a generational statement, with the current board and management teams working together collaboratively to articulate a vision for their generation. Generational vision does not sit in isolation from the foundations of core purpose and core values. Rather, an exciting and fresh vision created by the collaboration of management and the board should be firmly connected to and tested against the core values and core purpose of the organisation to ensure that the vision is not in conflict with the purpose or values. There is another group that's concerned with the core values and core purpose, the founding membership group or individuals that started the not-for-profit and that are charged with protecting these important statements. These moral owners, as we call them, of the organisation are the group of members, individuals or other entities that appoint the board and to whom the board is accountable. It's important for the board to have identified a moral ownership group. The moral owners are the group that the board itself are accountable to. A structure that is in common use in the not-for-profit sector is the self-perpetuating or self-electing board. The board in this case holds both the role of the board and tries also to be the moral owner of the organisation. This structure is unhelpful for the long-term health and sustainability of the organisation. With a self-perpetuating board, problems arise, including an increased risk of groupthink and blind spots, excessive lengths of tenure for board members leading to competency and motivation issues, lack of turnover of leadership for fresh thinking, and boards that over time move from governance to a tendency to control. With no established accountability group, these issues are left unresolved, sometimes for decades. In one recent organisation that Resolve worked with, the chairman of the board retired after 44 years of board membership and 22 years as chairman. Whilst this commitment to serve is admirable at one level, the organisation's governance suffered and was found to be in major need of an overhaul to bring the organisation up to date from the perspective not only of strategic planning and policy, but in legal and statutory compliance as well. And this is not an isolated example. To recap, the moral owners are the keepers of the core values and core purpose and can help keep the board accountable for its authority and how it's governed and used that authority to further the core purpose of the organisation in alignment with the core values. One of the other key roles of the board is to report back to the moral owners on how they've looked after or served the purposes of the organisation consistently with the stated core values and core purposes of the not-for-profit. Finally, it's critical that the board engage an executive or CEO that subscribe to personally and can lead the organisational personnel consistently with the organisation's core values and core purpose. The executive or CEO are the key linkage from the board to the rest of the organisation's community and therefore will be responsible to provide the engine to the organisation's operations. It's the board's role to monitor how this engine continues to operate within the core values, core purpose and vision of the organisation. I knew a board member that used to always be the one to find a problem with whatever was being discussed. They would often sit silently, listening to the debate, circle around the meeting and then just when it looked like a decision was starting to emerge, would jump in with a comment or question really designed to stop the decision-making process. Another board member had the habit of being a pessimist on everything, asking, but what if this happens? Numerous times in ever-increasing levels of detail and remoteness, it seemed to me. Another board member offered routinely a continuous restating of a negative view even though it was clear to everyone else that the board was pretty happy with the way the discussion was heading. 
I could never understand these behaviours and how they could be allowed to slow down meetings so much. Also, it used to drive me crazy to watch board members who made little contribution to board meetings most of the time dive into a discussion with gusto and passion the minute something was on the agenda that affected them personally. I saw this, for example, when working with school boards. Curriculum changes, fee policy and all kinds of other operational discussions that board members with children in the school had a hard time separating in terms of their role as a board member versus their role as a parent. There's no place in a healthy board meeting for grandstanding, bullying, or other behaviours that actively work against the principle of many views but one voice. Whilst robust conversations can signal a healthy board, author John Carver cautions boards to remember that the board speaks with one voice or not at all. Because of this, part of the chair's role is to make sure debate happens in a healthy, inclusive way. Make sure quieter board members have an opportunity to contribute, especially on important decisions. Conversely, for the boisterous board members who keep jumping in, a quiet word from the chair to hear from others first before they speak again may be needed from time to time. A method practiced by the chair that's proved to be very effective in difficult decisions is to pause at the end of discussions to go round the table, inviting each board member to make a final statement prior to calling for a resolution to make the decision. This helps get to the decision, plus gives a good informal indication to the chair and board members which way the vote is likely to be heading. If the numbers are still too close to call, then more time can be devoted to address lingering concerns or questions. The one-voice principle eliminates uncertainty about what the board has decided and what it is not. One voice does not require unanimous voting. However, it does require all board members to respect a decision once it's made. So, what if a board member has voted against a motion that was approved? What can you do? Essentially, you only have a couple of options. The first option, if you're aware of new information or a reason to revisit the decision, is to put a motion to discuss the matter further. This should be put formally and therefore require a seconder to the motion in order to reopen the decision or discussion. If you can't get a seconder, it's a pretty clear indicator that a board member might be on their own in relation to a particular view and their desire to revisit the decision. Another option, which is more drastic, is to resign from the board. That can sometimes be pretty much your only option if you can't live with the decision the board has made. You see, when a board has made a decision, you are all committed to moving forward with supporting and implementing that decision as a board. The board has and will communicate in one voice. There is no option for board members to leave a board meeting and then announce in other forums that you didn't vote for a particular decision. You are not free as board members to use other forums to express your disagreement with the decision. Even if you're a moral owner or member of the not-for-profit's governing body, because you are a board member, you're bound by board confidentiality. Plus, you're also required to toe the line and present the board's one-voice view outside the boardroom on decisions made by the board. Some boards will allow the practice of noting in the minutes when individual board members vote against a motion or abstain from voting. This practice only encourages the perception that somehow the board member is separate from the board in relation to a decision and is not a helpful practice. An alternative would be to ensure that the issues raised by the board member are articulated in the discussion section of the minutes prior to the decision, so that this shows board members' concerns were considered in the making of the decision. 
However, when it comes time for the decision, a simple one-line resolution statement should be recorded. An example might be, it was resolved to purchase the land and establish a new childcare centre operation. This is an example of a clear and concise minuted board decision. The board and individual board members' essential responsibility is to act in the best interest of the organisation and to put the organisation's interest ahead of their own interests. For example, the board should not put the interests of another related organisation ahead of its own best interest, just because people are common board members on both. Managing these conflicts can be tricky when there are interconnecting not-for-profits that operate as a network or group, or when you have the same people sitting on multiple boards. Part of the board's role is to manage the personal conflicts of interest of board members. A conflict of interest occurs when a board member has a personal interest that conflicts with the interests of the organisation that they're bound to protect. Conflicts of interest are not bad in themselves. All board members will have them. However, poor management of conflicts of interest can be very damaging to the integrity of the organisation. Having a culture that encourages the declaration of conflicts of interest and managing these well is the aim here. Failing to manage conflicts of interest also has the potential to impair the board in making decisions that are in the best interest of the organisation. This carries with it the great risk of harming the organisation, as well as potential legal ramifications for the board members and the organisation. Appropriately identifying and managing conflicts of interest is essential to promoting transparency and accountability within the board. And good or bad management of conflicts of interest also has the potential to influence the organization's overall culture. The ability to have trust in the integrity of board members and their ability to make decisions that are in the best interest of the organization is essential to the long-term sustainability of the not-for-profit. The risks associated with poor management of conflicts of interest must be mitigated in a way that's acceptable to all board members. There are simple ways in which the board can prevent poor management of conflicts of interest becoming an issue. Firstly, the board can adopt a policy on conflicts of interest. The policy should outline who it applies to, a definition of what a conflict of interest is, the responsibility and expectation to disclose that conflict, the level of confidentiality adhering to the disclosure, identifying the failure to disclose, and subsequent consequences. Conflicts of interest can be both real or perceived. A policy is a good place to spell this out. Secondly, the board should also maintain a register detailing interests and any related party transactions that board members have with the organisation. The purpose of this register is to ensure that each matter is documented, remembered and dealt with appropriately. The board can promote a culture of disclosure. This can be encouraged via an induction course for all newly appointed board members. The induction process should provide each board member with a greater understanding of all actual, potential and perceived conflicts of interest. It's appropriate for each board member to sign an annual declaration to disclose any conflicts. It's also helpful to make disclosure of conflicts a standing agenda item at all meetings, to remind board members of their responsibility to disclose and gives them an opportunity to do this and review the conflicts of interest register. During this time, the board can discuss the nature of the conflict, often without the board member present if any board member or executive in the meeting would prefer. It may be decided that there are no inherent issues with the perceived or actual conflict. If there is an issue, it's appropriate for the member in conflict to be restricted from participating and essentially acting on that conflict of interest. This may mean abstaining from voting in part of the meeting or being excluded from the meeting altogether when discussing a particular matter. The chair should lead this process and the board decide the best approach managing each conflict of interest matter as they arise.
The success of a board relies on lots of factors. Good policy, clear meeting process, clear minute taking, just to name a few. If you have been involved on more than a couple of boards though, it's likely you'll see another major reason why some boards seem to be healthy and moving forward from strength to strength versus others that really struggle or always seem to be in crisis. I reckon you can have all the policies in the world and systems and processes. If you don't have the right person as chair of the board, that can all go out the window. The best policies and systems won't save you. What I'm getting at here is that the character and skill of the chairman is critical to the board culture and a successful governance function. Finding the right chair for your board can be a challenge. How do you even learn to be the chair of a board? The good news is that if you follow a few simple principles as chair, you'll do the job just fine. People tend to get into trouble in the chair's role for a number of reasons. Some more common reasons include Operating separately from the board and seeing the role as some kind of super board member with the final say or where the chair thinks they get the final say on everything. Letting personal ego or agenda get in the way by trying to be the leader of the board with the rest of the board being seen as subordinates of a sort, rather than seeking to serve fellow board members as a servant leader and the first among equals, leading the process of effective governance and group decision making. Allowing bad behavior to go unchallenged in the boardroom. Being too passive and allowing the meeting to drift not leading the process of decision-making and board meeting flow is a very common issue in boards. Letting management run over the top of the board and letting the board become bystanders to the governance function as it's taken over by the executive by default or deliberately. The role of the board chair is to provide servant leadership for the board of directors, to direct the board's focus, efficiency and conduct, and not to direct the board itself. The chair acts as the link between the board and the executive and between the board and the moral owners. It's necessary to have a clear understanding of each of these roles and their responsibilities and boundaries. This will promote mutual respect and provide the framework for appropriate information to flow within. These relationships should be centered around achieving the same objectives. The role of the chair in facilitating a meeting contributes significantly to enabling a board to achieve more in a limited time. The chair should liaise with the organization's CEO or executive to prepare each meeting's agenda. The chair's role is to set the tone of the meeting and to keep the board members focused on the agenda. The chair should facilitate effective contributions from all board members and promote constructive and respectful relations between board members, as well as between board and management. The chair is the official spokesperson or representative for the organization, but not a super board member with the final say. A quality chair will know the mind of the board and be able to take this rather than their own particular view with them between board meetings as they interact as the linkage with the moral owners and executive. We've talked a fair bit about the role of the chair and the important responsibilities that this role has. This sounds pretty risky though. If we get the choice of chair wrong, are we saying that the whole board will suffer and be ineffective? What about the other board members? Don't they make a difference? Can't they step up if things start to go bad? And how about having a deputy chair? Are there other ways to support the board and help the chair do a really good job and to help the chair remain accountable to good practices? One idea I've seen practiced in a number of boards is elevating the role of secretary of the board. 
In a corporate structure, the company secretary role is usually responsible for ensuring governance compliance, getting lots of forms filled in on time, and sometimes taking the minutes. In most not-for-profits, the secretary role is reduced to that of minutes secretary. Why not make a distinction between the minutes secretary and the board secretary? The board secretary can have a very crucial role in helping the board and the chair with the business of the board. A good board secretary will even be able to assist the chair in their role during and between meetings, keeping on track with the flow of the meeting, drafting proposed decisions and clarifying points relating to meeting process and previous policy or discussion. The board secretary role is a critical one. The compliance and governance responsibilities of not-for-profit boards have increased over recent years. So too has the volume of work and skill necessary to support the board. The board secretary's role is one role that can take on these additional responsibilities. There are two core aspects of the board secretary's role. The practical side is that the secretary should perform tasks for the board that include drafting meeting agendas, assembling papers and reports, distribute board papers and take meeting minutes. This is of course unless the board appoints a separate minute secretary, which is more common in larger organisations. The other aspect of the board secretary's role is to develop board systems and processes by providing advice and direction. Processes such as the board appraisal, board skills matrix, board policy handbook and board member induction can be guided by the board secretary. There's no legal requirement for a board secretary to have particular skills or qualifications. However, this increasingly demanding role should consider a candidate with the appropriate attributes, skills and qualifications. It's interesting to see a growing number of qualifications and short courses now available in the area of governance over recent years. Offering professional development to your board secretary is a good investment toward the health of your governance. Some boards seem to do all the work themselves and others use board subcommittees. We've observed all kinds of use of committees by boards. Some of the issues observed when using board committees include committees can sometimes get a life of their own and not be well connected back to the board that formed them. Committees can be unclear about what authority they have, if any, and who they report to. Many committees have never been given a terms of reference or role description, a reason for why they exist, so they create a reason themselves. This approach can lead a committee to stray into areas that may be outside their portfolio or end up moving their focus to operational areas that are actually management responsibility areas. A board can use committees to improve its efficiency. It's important that both board and committee understand that a committee is formed to help the board perform its work. The purpose of the committee is not to do the work of the organisation staff or make decisions on behalf of the board. The role of the committee and its boundaries are important to understand and adhere to. It's critical to recognise that the committee's role is to gather research and expert opinion around the delegated matter, formulating a recommendation for action to the board for their consideration and approval. The responsibility for decision-making remains with the board, as it's the board that's legally responsible for the organisation's governance. A committee should be chaired by a board member where possible. However, the committee can include members that are not board members. Committee members that can contribute relevant perspectives and expertise should be considered from outside the board. A committee can draw on valuable resources within a not-for-profit community, providing a greater depth of insight and efficiency to a board's decision-making.
This is particularly helpful for a not-for-profit, since board members are already committed to volunteering their time and services, attending to their board responsibilities. Committees provide an opportunity for volunteers to make a contribution, which also provides an opportunity for the board to assess potential future board members from among this group. Developing and documenting a clear role description or terms of reference for a committee is worthwhile at the time of establishing one. This sets up a framework from day one for the committee to work within and be held accountable to. It can also promote understanding at board and operational levels, so the committee can be well supported in their task. When considering the terms of reference for a committee, you can also ask the important question of whether this needs to be an ongoing committee or a short-term meeting for a specific purpose. Some committees get initially established for a purpose and then find themselves continuing on indefinitely, often then looking for new things to do when the project is ended. Not a good use of a committee. You're more likely to attract a person to join a committee if the purpose is clear and they know that this is for a specific time period. The committee's role description and terms of reference should include a reminder of the responsibility to keep appropriate records of committee actions. Minutes should be kept for each meeting and timely appropriate reporting should be communicated to the board. Sending a copy of committee minutes to the full board meeting should be standard practice. A committee can also be confused with a task force or team, and it's important to understand the distinction. Committees are the most formal of these groups and are sometimes even defined in the organization's bylaws or constitution. Some committees may be ongoing whilst others may be ad hoc and appointed for a specific purpose and deadline, after which they will cease to exist. A task force is a different group, typically comprising of experts in a specified area, brought together in response to a specific event or situation with a specific objective and then disbanded when the objective has been achieved. The task force is not defined by organisation bylaws. A team is also a group with complementary skills, formed for a common purpose. However, a team is not as formal as either a committee or task force. A team's leadership moves more fluidly between its members and is more relaxed in its structure. It's also not defined by bylaws. During the next part of this podcast, we discuss some of the work of the board as it seeks to work with management towards realising the vision and mission of the not-for-profit. We're going to take a look at the three important pieces of work that the board should be engaged in. Creating and supporting strategic intent and direction, monitoring operational success, and appraising management's performance. Strategic intent is developed with the vision of the organisation, remembering that the vision will be consistent with the core purpose and core values. We next ask, where do we want to go? Another word for strategic intent would be mission. What is our mission going to be to achieve our vision? Strategic planning processes are used in organisations to develop management plans to pursue the mission of the organisation. They follow similar steps in most organisations. The first step we've already discussed, articulating clearly and simply your core values and core purpose. The board's job on behalf of the moral owners. Next, the board in conjunction with management have determined a vision for the organisation for this generation, which is consistent with the core purpose, but specific and measurable, and that will inspire the organisational community. Now, armed with the vision, the board and management should develop a strategic management plan or mission to move towards the vision. Strategic plans to achieve this will ideally have these components. An audit component, to hear from the whole of the organisational community on how we're going and where we should be heading next. A gathering of ideas and input through a community sentiment survey. Research and analysis of changes to the environment that the organisation operates in. 
A useful acronym is to perform some spelt research. Reflection on changes to social, political, economic, environmental, legal and technological areas of society. Armed with these tools, the board and management discern together mission goals for the future. We recommend a three-year cycle of strategic planning to develop mission goals and a seven-year cycle to revisit and renew commitment to core purpose, core values and a review of vision. Once mission goals that strategically aim to shift the organization in a measurable way to new initiatives are established and agreed, the operational strategic management plan incorporating strategies can be developed using annual action plans each year. The annual action plans are presented to the board for approval. Strategic plans are hit and miss. Let's be honest here, most strategic plans end up on a shelf gathering dust and the operational plans that come out of them are just pages and pages of writing activities that we're already doing. Do I sound cynical? Well, maybe you are too. For an operational plan to work, it needs to be connected clearly to the strategic intent and goals and not just be a listing of all the programs and activities that we're already doing. The document has to be strategic too. Even in the largest organisations, we're talking about half a dozen to a dozen strategic goals over a three-year period being the goal here. Much more than that will be too hard to achieve in an already busy organisation. The annual action plans are a key tool for managing an organisation's direction as it seeks to achieve the mission goals spelt out in the strategic management plan. It provides a framework for the work that must be done to ensure the planned goals and objectives are achieved. The annual action plans are the responsibility of the organization's CEO or executive. The completed plans will need to be created and presented to the board for approval, albeit with input from all stakeholders including the board, using the processes discussed earlier. The annual action plan should begin with longer-term goals identified in the strategic management plan and then broken down into shorter-term annual action plans. The annual action plans are the tool used to carry out the strategic management plan. Without the strategic management plan in view, the annual action plans can be like planning a holiday without knowing where you're going. When creating annual action plans, it's important to keep it simple. The more complex the strategies are in the plan, the less likely the organization's teams will commit to achieving them. Start by deciding which mission goals are most important in terms of driving your annual action plans and start by adding initiatives that detail how these goals will be achieved over the three-year plan. From the three-year plan, distill these key initiatives down to one-year objectives. The short-term objectives should be supported by detailing the strategies and resources required to achieve them. Once you've done the highest priority mission goals, move through the remaining mission goals following the same process. The board's role is to approve and monitor the annual action plans, not to write them. In this process, the board is assessing whether management has sufficiently strived for the mission goals with the strategies suggested, and not to change the strategies or make strategies directly. If the board is not happy with the strategies, it's management's role to work with staff and volunteers to present alternatives that meet the requirements of the board in terms of how they'll measure success in achieving the stated goals. Okay, so the organisation is travelling along and has implemented a strategic plan. Then what? How do we know that we've succeeded in implementing the plan? And that the plan itself was successful in taking the organisation where it needed to go? Is this the board's job to determine? Or the whole organisational community, given they had input into the plan? Also, how do we then assess our CEO or executive? 
I've read in Policy Governance by John Carver that he says organisational performance is the same as CEO performance. Is that right? Do we need to appraise our CEO or executive separately to the strategic planning process? The board is responsible for overseeing and evaluating the performance of the organisation, as well as the organisation's CEO or executive, depending on your structure. Let's assume, for the purpose of this podcast, that your organisation has a CEO leadership structure, rather than a more complex executive structure. Organisational performance and CEO performance are not the same thing. They are, however, related. The performance of the organisation, of course, impacts on the perceived and actual success of the CEO. However, this is only one part of the picture. Organisational performance can be impacted by many factors, with many of these outside the control of the CEO or their staff. For this reason, organisational performance can never be the sole criteria for measuring the performance of the CEO. Instead, the board agenda planning calendar should plan for an appraisal of the CEO's performance on an annual basis in some form. We recommend best practice would be to appraise the CEO internally and less formally each year, and every three years appraise the CEO more formally, in a 360-degree style externally facilitated appraisal. The formal appraisal process allows the board to collect feedback from direct reports to the CEO, as well as their own views. Having this appraisal externally facilitated provides discernment of this feedback and subsequent advice, which will also provide valuable insight into the leadership skills of the CEO and opportunity to identify further leadership goals and areas of professional development and improvement for the CEO. A gap analysis to compare actual performance with potential or desired performance is a useful approach when analysing the effectiveness of the relationship between the board and the CEO. This can be achieved by using a survey tool that allows the CEO to self-assess their performance, which is reviewed against the opinions of the board and their direct report staff who also complete the survey. Setting personal, professional goals for the CEO into the future, including professional development opportunities and areas to improve, should also be part of the process. This should be performed collaboratively with the CEO, usually by the chair or a smaller task force of the board, in the informal appraisal years and by the consultant in the external appraisal process. During the goal-setting stage, key performance indicators can also be developed, which will prove useful to track the progress between appraisals. Well, that brings us to the end of this Governance Ideas presentation. For more information on governance, management, leadership or finance ideas, visit us at resolve.consulting.